What good's an old, outdated guidebook? For Peter Fines, it's an entryway into another world. It's partly the maps, it's the, it's the detail, it's, it's also thrilling to unfurl a map from a 1923 blue guide to London. The former publisher of Time Out points out that travel guides have been around since ancient Greece. Jack Davis grew up along the Gulf Coast of Florida. He suggests we rethink how we treat what he calls America's sea. And knowing the Gulf intimately, I knew the Gulf was more than just this oil supplier or this hurricane alley as, as it is often portrayed. And when you plan to visit the exquisite art in Europe, be sure to include its great architecture. In Ireland, that can include prehistoric megaliths aligned with the winter solstice. A beam of light comes shining through that little tunnel and lights up the sacred chamber inside. Let's explore the world together. It's Travel with Rick Steves. We're swapping tales about our love of guidebooks and their impacts on our lives with the former publisher of Time Out in just a minute on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Later in the hour, we'll recommend places you'll always remember when you travel to view the greatest art and architecture in Europe. And a University of Florida professor who won a Pulitzer writing about it pays homage to one of the most taken-for-granted places in America, the Gulf of Mexico. For years, when I arrived at Heathrow Airport for a visit to London, I'd buy the latest Time Out magazine. It was a trendy but accessible magazine. It gave me an inside track to London's art and culture scene with lots of sidebars perfect for someone looking to give their trip an extra kick. Then the same magazine was popping up all over Europe with the same winning formula. Soon, an entire series of Time Out guidebooks were on the bookshelves. Peter Fines was a publisher at Time Out for 25 years, building that brand and cranking out bestsellers. Peter joins us now to talk about guidebooks. Pete, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Now, this is a few years ago because Time Out went out of business, what, a decade ago or something? Well, the guidebooks uh, dwindled, although um, they were carried on by under license, and I think there's still a couple that appear every now and again, but they're nothing like what they once were. Now, I remember I was just building my little guidebook world, and I was thinking, God, this time-out formula, it's going to be tough to compete with. I was, <laughs> there, there was something about it that was really um, sophisticated and more immediate. What was your vision? How, how did that come about, the, the time-out series? Well, we evolved out of the weekly magazine, so it just sort of emerged in a natural, organic way that what we would do, we would use local authors and we would go to the city and we would find the local expert on film or restaurants or bars or theatre or sightseeing. And because they lived in that city, but we brought our kind of outsider perspective, we felt that that worked really well because that's what people want in the end from a guidebook is to feel that they're getting to the real essence of a city and they're going to find the little bar down the little alleyway that no one else knows about other than the people who live there. I think that was probably the the little magic juice there was to take that local expertise and sort of the immediacy in the front of a magazine, but then reconfigure it in a guidebook. Yes, it was. It was that was the magic of them, I suppose, which is that uh, they were written by locals who really cared about telling you what was special about the place they had chosen to live in. Peter Fines is joining us from the BBC in London for a look at the value of guidebooks, even when they get old and musty. Peter's the author of A Thing of Beauty, Travels in Mythical and Modern Greece. And books he wrote before that from his rambles in the English countryside brought him critical acclaim. 
You'll find links to Peter's earlier interviews with us on these topics with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Now, now, you had all those years, 25 years of experience with Time Out, and now you are, right, you've written some beautiful books on your own. Uh, you've written A Thing of Beauty about travels in mythical and modern Greece. You've written a book called Footnotes, which is a journey around Britain in the company of the great writers. Uh, where's your um, travel writer heart now? Is it in publishing or is it in writing? I think I've become a writer now. It was a difficult transition and I still have a guidebook heart in me and I want to, part of the thing about guidebook people is they want to tell other people what's exciting about a place. That hasn't left me at all. You know, we can rant on for hours, can't we, as guidebook writers about you must go to this thing, you must see this, and and that's just something you're born with as as a natural guidebook writer. You can't ever escape that. So all my books that I've written since have that element to them, but at the same time, I'm really relieved that I don't have to round out the best hotels of Prague anymore. You know, it's so funny you say that because for years, I, I sort of almost prided myself in writing information in my, my first books that was broader and more timeless than, you know, hours of entry and what does it cost and is it closed mm. on Monday and, and you know, <laughs> where's the best little corner bistro? And then I, I realized for my work, that's really what people want is all of this uh, immediate listing kind of stuff. And it, it puts a lot of tedium into your work, but it lets you provide for that need among travelers. But you managed, with the books you've written lately, to write like guidebooks in disguise. You, you wrote a book, uh, A Thing of Beauty, helping people travel around Greece, being mindful and tuned into the rich heritage of the ancient Greek myths. And then you wrote the uh, footnotes around traveling around Britain as if you have for your tour guide the great writers. So you have managed with these books to kind of have that um, utopian writers sort of a niche where you don't need to know what time is the museum closed and how much <laughs> is the tourist menu if you arrive early. Uh, but you get to write, I think, more fundamentally. It's kind of a, a great niche. Well, I'm indulging myself, I suppose. But also, when I wrote my book about Greece, I was following a, a second-century guidebook writer, Pausanias, second-century BC. So guidebook writers have been around forever. And he's. it's interesting to read him, this 2,000-year-old guidebook writer, <laughs> because he exhibits all the same traits that most of us guidebook writers exhibit. You know, he is very pedantic at times but also very excited about what he has to tell you. And that's the art, isn't it? I'm, it's interesting because I'm so thankful I've got a great publisher and uh, Bill Newland at Avalon, and he is obsessed with old guidebooks. And he's got a, he could almost have opened up a museum in his library at home. Mm. And I understand you have a similar obsession with old guidebooks. What is it about old guidebooks for publishers? I love old guidebooks, and uh, sadly I don't have a copy of Pausanias in the original, but I do have some beautiful old early 20th century guidebooks. It's partly the maps, it's the, it's the detail, it's it's also thrilling to, to unfurl a map from a 1923 blue guide to London, which I have, and on it is a map of London Zoo, which has things marked like the GNU enclosure, and it's just so evocative of what London was once like. And, and they had such confidence to say that there is the GNU enclosure and it will always be there. And sadly, it's not. But no. um, that's what it is. You can open up an old guidebook and that world comes rushing in at you. The language, but the maps in particular. I, you know, I and love I've the done old that. maps. I've opened up a 100-year-old you know, guidebook and marveled at how lovingly done the maps are. A lot of times you fold those maps out and you think, how did they... 
even make this book in an efficient way to resell it when you've got this map that folds out and it's just it's a work of art. I feel like I'm supposed to be wearing white white mittens or something, so I don't. Uh, yes, to handle it. it. Sadly, you're you know you, none of us can do this anymore, and so Bill Newland, your publisher, will be saying if you try any fold out maps, he'll have harsh <laughs> words to say about the bottom line. But they loved but, uh, they loved those quality <laughs> books. It's just um, it was from another age, I think, when people got elegance and quality out of the actual tangible book they're reading. Instead of uh, you know jumping online and, and and finding the world at their fingertips that way, yeah, I don't know if you've noticed the change even in the period you've been doing guidebooks, but I certainly noticed it. Um, our first guidebooks in the, the mid mid nineteen eighties, we put a, an awful lot of care and attention into them that we really couldn't afford to put in yeah. later. You know, the oh, cost yeah. of print soared and the oh, yeah. book sales have obviously diminished. My early books had rounded corners. I remember my publisher mm. spent ten cents a book to round those corners, and finally they had Absolutely a... right. I think you should bring that back and put in a little ribbon as well, which that people sort of used to a love. ribbon <laughs> in a book. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Peter Fines, kind of for the love of guidebooks. Peter, for 25 years, was a publisher at Time Out. Lately, he's moved beyond publishing, and he's just writing books that fit his passions. He's written a book called A Thing of Beauty, travels in mythical and modern Greece, and he's written a book called Footnotes, a journey around Britain in the company of great writers. Peter, a lot of people say, oh, guidebooks are dying out. You know, you can get all that information mm. uh, with uh, crowdsourcing sites and so on. And a whole generation of people, I think, are getting up on Yelp or, or TripAdvisor or whatever and, and finding out where to eat when they're in Paris. What's your take on the trajectory of guidebooks and how people in the future will get information for their travels? I still love the feel and smell of print. I still love, I mean, if, if a book didn't exist, you'd probably want to invent it. It's very portable. Mm -hmm. You can flick through it. You can find what you want very easily. It's a lovely thing. There are, you know, there are generations of people who still want to take books with them. Yeah. And I don't think the smartphone has superseded that yet. Although, obviously, the, the market has shrunk enormously and Time Out are not doing their guides so much anymore and others aren't. Mm -hmm. So the market has shrunk, but there's still always, you know, there's lots of people who love the book. And um, there are reasons for that because it's extremely, you know, it's, it's cheap technology and it's um, extremely useful. To me, a big challenge for travelers is in the old days, it was there was not enough information. We just need information. Now there's a glut of information and you really need mm. to have that information curated when so much of it is crowdsourcing stuff. And people who have been to Paris once in their life feel like they know where the best little coffee shop is. Yes, I think that's what you're um, looking for as someone you trust. Um, it's bewildering the amount of information out there. And some of it does seem to work. You know, there's, if enough people are saying enough things about this particular hotel or bar, then you can sort of glean the truth about the thing. But at the same time, as you say, there are voices that you trust who are curating the information and presenting it in a way that, that you, the reader, have grown to appreciate. People do tend to gravitate time and again to the brands or the people that they they know and they've grown up with. And each guidebook has a personality. Your Time Out books had a personality. For some people, it was just it was just too arty and it was too uh, trendy and it was too young. Uh, other guidebooks are for people who want to stay out late and gamble mm -hmm. and drink. And other <laughs> guidebooks are for people who just love art. <laughs> so it's not a qualitative thing. It's just, I think, as a smart traveler, you got to find the right information that fits your travel dreams. I totally agree. And also, it's interesting that when a travel publisher tries to please all of those different segments, they tend to fail. 
um, once you've found what you do well, then you want to keep on doing it well, and, uh, and then you will endure, we hope. Peter, it's been so fun just to compare notes as fellow travel writers. You know, for a long time I've said if you want to travel smart, you can. You just got to equip yourself with good information and expect it to work. What's your advice for somebody that wants to, you know, the trip's a big deal. They've, they've waited, they've saved, now they're going to take this trip that they've always wanted to go. And really, the quality of that experience is really up to them. What's your advice for getting the most out of the information and having the best trip? Oh, enjoy your planning. I think that's the main thing to take on board because uh, before you go, there's so much you can do online and um, think about where you're going to first spend your time. But then find your preferred guidebook whoever that might be, and take that with you and enjoy it them and be prepared for the unexpected. You know, don't try and plan every last minute of your trip. Be ready for things to happen to you. I guess that any, any good guidebook writer would say, hey, when serendipity presents itself, put the guidebook down and run with it. Absolutely. Once you're in the right bar or the right restaurant and someone comes up to you and say, hey, we're all going here next, this is going to be amazing, then I think you should probably plunge right in. You don't get out your guidebook and think, is that a good bar? <laughs> no, you could read about it in the guidebook when you're in the bar and think, well, they got this wrong or got this right. Thank you. Uh, good advice. Peter Fines, thanks so much and uh, happy travels. Thank you very much. Finding the real beauty of the Gulf of Mexico. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. You can think of the Gulf of Mexico as the American Sea, a source of beauty and food, one that moderates the climate, removes carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, and provides a rich harvest. Jack E. Davis wrote an environmental history of Earth's 10th largest body of water that won the Pulitzer Prize for History in 2018. His book is called The Gulf, the Making of an American Sea. Jack's with us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us about the coastline that Americans often overlook and sometimes neglect. Jack, thanks so much for joining us. It's nice to chat with you again, Rick. Hey, Jack, you won a Pulitzer Prize for a book about the Gulf of Mexico. What does that really mean when you're recognized and honored this way? Uh, Is it a matter of how important the topic is, how deep you got into it, how artfully it was written? Um... What helps a teacher like you win a Pulitzer Prize? I think you you identified uh, all those qualities that the judges are looking for in a Pulitzer Prize winner. And I, I had no expectation of, of winning uh, the Pulitzer Prize and was uh, shocked beyond belief. For me, it, the prize is really for the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. Uh, and it's more about the Gulf than it is about me. Well, I was going to say, obviously, it's an honor for you and it's a feather in your cap as a great writer. But it's also quite an honor for the Gulf of Mexico to be thought of as a worthwhile um, recipient of such uh, thoughtful coverage. And it's an important body of water that's off. As you mentioned in the book, it is so often underappreciated and overlooked. Now, you grew up in Tampa Bay, witnessing the ebb and flow of life as you grew up and uh, the impact of the Gulf and so on. How did your youth in Tampa Bay prime you to write this uh, groundbreaking book? Yeah, that's exactly right. It, it it did prime me. I have this lifelong intimate relationship with the, with the Gulf of Mexico. And um, when I realized that nobody had written uh, a history or an environmental history of the Gulf of Mexico, uh, I saw a need there. And knowing the Gulf intimately, I knew the Gulf was more than just this oil supplier or this hurricane alley as, as it is often portrayed. 
I wanted readers to know the true Gulf, to know its true identity. You wrote about the Gulf. The Gulf is a, the American Sea. What happens to it happens to us. Tell us, what is so impactful about the Gulf that Americans should understand, even if they don't live on its coast? Yeah, the Gulf of Mexico is truly American Sea, and I wanted readers to know that Americans, all Americans, are connected to the Gulf of Mexico, both historically and ecologically, whether they've even seen the Gulf of Mexico. Um, more than 60% of the lower 48 states and part of Canada drain into uh, rivers that flow to the, the, the Gulf of Mexico. It's one of our most productive commercial fishing areas in the, in the United States. It's our most popular saltwater fishing hole. And, and of course, it's uh, a place where millions of people come every year to enjoy the, the beach and, uh, as I say, the best sunsets in the world. Boy, you know, when you mentioned 60 percent of the lower 48 and some of Canada drains into the Gulf uh, I would imagine that's all about the Mississippi River and the Delta by uh, New Orleans, right? So if you think about that bottleneck there, everything that comes in, everything that goes out right there through that very critical little spot of the the Gulf Coast. That's the most critical spot. But there are actually 85 rivers flow through the uh, United States to the Gulf of Mexico. Hmm. So it's not just the Mississippi River. It's rivers over in Texas, you know, all the way to the Rio oh, yeah. Grande. Uh, And then, of course, uh, numerous rivers flowing to the Gulf through Florida and Alabama and uh, Louisiana and Mississippi, other than the Mississippi River. But, yes, the Mississippi River is the mighty Mississippi. And I like to say that whatever you put on the ground up in Iowa, let's say, ends up in in the Mississippi River and the Gulf of Mexico. You know, I was also impressed. I'm no climate scientist, that's for sure. But you described pretty vividly how— what happens in the Gulf has environmental influence far beyond the Gulf, uh, impacting uh, the climate even in Europe. Yes, that's exactly right. The Gulf Stream, the Gulf Stream connects uh, North America to uh, Europe, and the Gulf Stream originates in, in the Gulf of Mexico from the loop currents circling around the Gulf uh, that flow out the uh, Florida Straits between Cuba and, and Key West, and then mm-hmm. on up uh, much of the eastern coast of the United States, and then across to Europe. I seem to remember also caravans of ships used to gather at Cuba, and then when the Gulf Stream was right, they would sort of hitch a ride over to Europe. That's exactly right. And this was because traveling on the Gulf Stream could knock off uh, two weeks or more of, of traveling time. And if you're carrying gold or silver, you didn't want to be out on the sea too long because that puts right. you in greater jeopardy to pirates. That's interesting to think in terms of today we think of, you know, stalled trucks at borders and this kind of thing. But in the old days, you had to think of sailing time to get from one hemisphere to the other. And that was part of the whole business equation. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jack E. Davis. And he grew up in the Tampa Bay area and now teaches history and sustainability studies at the University of Florida. Jack won a Pulitzer Prize for the book we're talking about now, The Gulf. It's been hailed as a nonfiction epic about the Gulf of Mexico. Jack's latest work is called The Bald Eagle, The Improbable Journey of America's Bird. Hey, Jack, when we're talking about the Gulf, you mentioned it was, you could call it the world's most diverse and productive marine ecosystem. That's quite a statement. What do you mean by diverse, and how is it so productive compared to other bodies of water? Well, it's one of the, and this is something that a lot of people don't realize, that the the Gulf of Mexico is one of the richest estuarine environments in the world. Uh, There's some 200 
estuaries circling the Gulf of Mexico. And, of course, estuaries are, uh, are nurseries, they're habitat, they are uh, great carbon sinks. They are responsible for a very productive commercial fishery in the United States. So this is a function of all the rivers that are coming into the Gulf, all which each have an estuary, right? That's right. Uh, that's why rivers are extremely important. Free-flowing rivers uh-huh. are extremely important to estuarine environments. You have to have the right mix of, of fresh and salt water to have a productive estuary. And when those rivers are dammed, or rerouted, uh, then you, you mm. affect the, uh, the estuarine environment. Or if you put something harmful in that river upstream, um, you can also harm that estuarine environment. You know, you, the New York Times, in their review of your book, called it a beautiful homage to a neglected sea. And we'll get into more ways we've neglected uh, this precious uh, natural resource. When you were describing the Gulf of Mexico before the arrival of white settlers from Europe, It just seemed like a natural paradise. Paint a picture of how it contributed to Indian culture and and the the Native Americans that were there and their economies and so on and and sort of the partnership that they had that we might be inspired by. Native peoples lived all around the Gulf of Mexico uh, dating back to eight to 10,000 years. It wasn't any coincidence that they, they settled along the Gulf of Mexico those very healthy estuarine environments were a principal food source for, for many of those groups. Uh, the Calusa, who lived in southwest Florida, were a non-agrarian people, but they were sedentary, which, was, which is a rare combination. They were not nomadic. They didn't have to go off to hunt for their food because it all came to them uh, from the Gulf of Mexico. They took 95% of their protein from uh, the Gulf estuaries. And when the first Europeans arrived, they were impressed by the number of giant shell mounds around the Gulf of Mexico. And what they were looking at was <laughs> the, the, the diet of, of Native peoples. And they were also impressed by how physically robust the, the people were around, yeah. the, around the Gulf of Mexico. Shaped by the blessing of the Gulf, which provided so much protein? That's exactly right. When you talk about how important it was to Native American tribes, of course, it was important for white settlers who came in there and pushed them aside. Tell us the whole dynamic and, and how white settlers capitalized on the abundance of the Gulf of Mexico to make uh, that coastline a beautiful place to settle. Yeah, the Spanish were the, the first to successfully settle the, the Gulf of Mexico, at least uh, among Europeans. Indeed, they did push aside many of the native groups, um, both through warfare, but also their diseases had a devastating impact on native peoples. The Spanish occupied the Gulf of Mexico for more than 300 years. The French uh, settled uh, certain parts of the Gulf of Mexico for a few years, and, and the British as well. Interestingly enough, none of those developed a commercial fishing trade. The, the British started to, but they weren't on the Gulf long enough to really get any traction. So it was left to enterprising Americans, I like to say, to develop a commercial fishing trade on the Gulf of Mexico starting in the early 19th century. Looking back on, on how we commercialized and industrialized the coast, you know, you, you saw the, the mountains of shells from Native American culture. And today we see sort of the modern day equivalent to that contaminated dredge mounds. Uh, you can draw some um, conclusions from that. You can. And I would add uh, condominium towers <laughs> uh, as well. 
by the time that the Americans began settling the Gulf in the early 19th century, uh, the indigenous people, the original native peoples, were all but gone around the Gulf of Mexico. Only a few were, were left. And so the Gulf of Mexico coastline really became an American coastline and turned uh, not only did they develop a commercial fishing trade, but they developed a, a, a tourist trade by the late 19th century, uh, which began booming in, in the 20th century. And uh, development uh, soon followed that tourist trade. I want to talk about that in just a minute. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're taking a close look at the importance of the Gulf of Mexico in the development of the United States with Jack E. Davis. Jack's the author of a book called The Gulf. Jack also writes about the improbable journey of America's iconic bird in his book The Bald Eagle. We have links to his work at ricksteves.com slash radio. So, Jack, you mentioned tourism and uh, development and, and so on. Uh, it's so easy for people to who are just like moving in and looking for a nice place to get some sunshine to think of the coastal marshes as a wasteland and think of it as just cheap real estate where they can put up a, a condo and make some money. But that's a very costly mistake in the long term when you think of the fragile echo balance there. What lessons should we learn and, and what appreciation should we take with us to the coast when we want to make that our retirement community? Yeah, there are a couple of important, really important lessons. Uh, historically, yes, coastal marshes were regarded as wastelands, and those coastal marshes are really estuarine environments, uh, very important to people in commercial fishing. So they're far from recreational fishing. Yeah, yes. But also in destroying those marshlands and, and often putting up concrete seawalls, they were also putting themselves in, in jeopardy. There's nothing better as a storm buffer than a living shoreline, whether it's a coastal marsh or seagrass beds or, or mangrove forest or oyster bar. And again, not only are they, they habitat and nurseries for marine life, but uh, they are also fantastic carbon sinks. An estuarine environment absorbs more carbon than a forest does. And we're in the age of sea level rise and, and climate change. And truly, our, our best defense against uh, sea level rise is not only to stop building on the coast, but we should be developing living shorelines, restoring them. You know, I would think political leadership is really important in the five Gulf states for the long-term livability of that area. It's it's really up to the electorate to choose, and the choice is kind of simple. Short-term, easy money versus long-term sustainability. I agree with you. Uh, it seems like an obvious choice, long-term sustainability. I think that uh, more and more uh, elected officials are beginning to recognize the importance of restoring the estuarine environment and the living shoreline and uh, ratcheting back on development on the coast. Also, the uh, the electorate really deserves to be educated. Um, sometimes they're told that concrete seawalls are, are the way to take care of things, and it really is not. It's an easy fix, or it seems like it's an easy fix, but concrete seawalls actually add to shoreline erosion. They don't prevent it. Well, you're a professor, and you teach issues of sustainability, and you're right there in the middle of it. A mantra for me is the best way to control nature is to obey her. It seems like nature is teaching that again and again to us. It is, and we need to heed those lessons, don't we? And unfortunately, we don't. I mean, one thing that we're victims of on the Gulf Coast, and particularly in Florida, is historical amnesia. 
Uh, we'll have a devastating hurricane, and it, it will do tremendous damage. Um, but five years later, we we will forget about that, and we'll we will repeat our mistakes. And it's not just Florida; it's also the federal government. I mean, yeah. FEMA allows us to rebuild in in harm's way and often doesn't allow us when we decide we get smart and say, oh, we shouldn't be rebuilt again here. We should build somewhere else smarter. Um, But FEMA doesn't always support that. Obvious lessons from that natural disaster that kind of dissolve like a sandcastle when the tide comes in. Jack E. Davis is joining us from our affiliate WUFT at the University of Florida, where he teaches history and sustainability studies. He's the author of The Gulf, The Making of an American Sea. Jack's also edited a recent anthology of writers inspired by Florida's nature called The Wilder Heart of Florida. You can listen to his earlier interview with us about his latest book, The Bald Eagle. It's in our show archives at ricksteves.com radio. Hey, Jack, let's finish on a very positive note. I'm a big fan of the value of tourism to help open people's eyes to things and appreciate things that they they might not otherwise appreciate. As a tourist, as a traveler, where can I go, where can our readers go to be inspired by mangrove forests and marshlands and osprey nests and otters and uh, blue crabs and oyster beds? I mean, can I find that paradise? You sure can, and thank you for that question because I, I'm really going to enjoy responding to it. There are so many wonderful places. Um, one is Sanibel Island and the Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge, a uh, great place to go for, uh, for birding in the winter times. And Sanibel has done a wonderful job of protecting the uh, native flora. One, another one of my favorite places is Padre Island National Seashore in Texas. And I like to say if you go to Padre Island National Seashore and you're not moved, then you better check your pulse because it's just <laughs> this, it's just this yeah. otherworldly place. Uh, the Gulf Islands National Seashore along the northern Gulf and Mississippi and, and Florida, uh, a wonderful place. And one of my absolutely favorite places, Rick, on the Gulf is the Walter Anderson Museum of Art in Ocean Springs, Mississippi. Walter Anderson, I refer to him in my book as the, the painter laureate of the Gulf of Mexico, he painted almost exclusively Gulf nature in the early and the mid-20th century. This museum, when you walk into this museum, you're walking into this wonderful world of, of Walter Anderson. Mm. Very impactful for me was Anne Morrow Lindbergh, who wrote her beautiful book about collecting seashells on the Gulf Coast. And I'd like to think Anne Morrow Lindbergh could enjoy a, a picnic on the beach and paw through those seashells and feel good about how the Gulf and the people who appreciate it are working together. Yes, I, I agree. And she liked to go to Captiva Island in southwest Florida those, those many decades ago. A gift from the sea. The Gulf can be our gift from the sea. This is uh, Travel with Rick Steves. We've been uh, talking with Jack E. Davis, and his book is The Gulf, The Making of an American Sea. Jack, congratulations on the Pulitzer Prize, acknowledging what an important book this is and how well-written it is. And thanks so much for uh, joining us and helping us better appreciate our American Sea. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Rick. I am really proud of the work my TV production team has done in creating a miniseries called Rick Steves' Art of Europe. We'll consider some of the sites of great art and architecture that I think you'll treasure when you get to visit Europe yourself. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. For a traveler, art is really a key to connecting with our past. 
And when you appreciate art, I think you have a huge advantage in the quest to have both a fun trip and a trip that can be life-changing. So right now, I'm just sort of in a mood to celebrate art. I've just finished a two-year-long project producing a six-hour miniseries for public television called Rick Steves' Art of Europe. And for decades, when I have some serious writing to do involving art, I collaborate with my first travel partner, my buddy from way back when I was a kid, Gene Openshaw. Gene's an amazing writer. He spearheaded the writing of the script. It's a 90-page script for this six-hour series. And I thought I'd invite Gene into our radio studio for kind of a celebration for an exciting job well done. Our long-awaited miniseries, The Art of Europe, is airing across the United States right now on public television. And Gene joins us to share some thoughts on flat-out the joy of art. Gene, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Gene, we've worked for two years on this project. (laughs) Can you define it in just a sentence or something? Yeah. It's the story of Europe and its people from prehistory to the present, illustrated with its greatest art, meaning statues, paintings, palaces, churches. So because it's a story, it's largely structured chronologically. But as you alluded to, it's also about geography. It's a travel show in a way because we're going from place to place, different countries, seeing the art that's there and the landscape that shaped the people that made this art. It is so powerful to think that we want to get a lot out of our sightseeing. And it's your responsibility as a traveler to take something with you so you can better appreciate your sightseeing. And an appreciation of wine, great. An appreciation of cuisine or a knowledge of architecture or geology or flora and fauna, that all helps. Yeah. Art. And in my humble opinion, art is more important than all of those things I just mentioned put together. I don't care about indignious stones. Is is that a word, indignious stones? (laughs) Indignant stones. Indignant stones, yeah. I care about a marble statue done 500 years ago that celebrated humanism, which is a big break as mankind was stepping out of the Middle Ages. Yeah, art is food for the soul. Amen. And we had six hours of, well, our challenge was to combine it into six hours in a cohesive story into a sweep. Yeah, and and I'd like to say we did it in a pretty coherent way. It kind of tells the story historically, but we take time to add in little sidebars here and there to deep dive into a particular artist, you know, the life of Van Gogh and how you can see the life of Van Gogh through his art from his early paintings of peasants to the time where he was his religious calling to the time where he you know, the last painting before he killed himself. And Gene, I'm so thankful for your writing ability when it comes to our teaching agenda as tour guides and art enthusiasts. And even Van Gogh, when you think about that, you wrote something about Van Gogh that really reminded us that if we understand the, the context of art history, it's much easier to appreciate a particular artist. Do you remember the line, you wrote a lot of words, but Van Gogh painted... This like oh, that, yes. and this like Monet, and this like... Um, he was like, yeah, he was like a sponge. He was, uh, he was largely self-taught, and so, yeah, he painted, he learned to paint Impressionism, like Monet. He learned to paint uh, still lifes. Uh, like Cezanne. Like Cezanne. Like he added bright color, like Gauguin. And he could put all of those together in a way that expressed himself perfectly. Ultimately, he could paint self-portraits like nobody else. And then you look at that self-portrait and you realize he's coming out of this rich soil of the artistic 
community in Europe. These guys were like musicians that jammed together in a lot of ways. They knew each other. And even if they didn't know each other, they, they knew... It was as if they virtually knew each other, even if they didn't live at the same time. They they slept with each other's art. They loved each other's art. They hung out together in the cafes. Van Gogh knew Toulouse-Lautrec. He knew Gauguin. And these guys were sort of the... It was the fringe of society a lot of times. It wasn't a pretty part of the world. These were the rebels, which was kind of new for art because before that, art was always for the academics. And suddenly you get this new generation, the Impressionists and the Post-Impressionists, who sort of set the template for modern artists, which is rebelling against the system in order to express your your individual soul. And we're talking about one generation in the 4,000-year sweep of European art history, and we tried to write it together in a 90-page script, both broken into six hours, six yeah. one-hour shows, and what we were just discussing there, that was just a beautiful little, little conversation. Yeah. That's a little moment. And you lace all these moments together... And it does have a flow. It has a beautiful flow. I mean, I always think even, if you think about what powers people, where are they at? Are they cerebral or are they emotional? And I always feel like there's a pendulum, swings back and forth. In so many ways, history is like a pendulum. And for art, to me, Gothic is kind of, it's the age of faith, it's emotional. And then the reaction or the stepping out of that was Renaissance, and of course that's more cerebral. And then Renaissance went too far, and what happens? And it becomes the the overripe Baroque style. And that's emotional. That's melodramatic. Emotional, melodramatic, the style of kings and popes. And then what happens there? The pendulum swings well, they again. Cut off the, they cut off the king's head yeah. and they have neoclassical <laughs> art and everything is... Churches are turned into temples of reason. Yeah. So this back and forth, and, and we can... We don't know that going into this. We can discover that as we swim through all the beautiful story of all these artistic movements and everything... This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Gene Openshop. We're reviewing some thoughts that came to us as we were busy for the last couple of years, writing our new series, Rick Steves' Art of Europe, a six-hour miniseries airing across the United States on public television. I've just got a game here, Gene. I want to just do this. Um, I've got some words that I tend to use a lot, and we want to use them sparingly. You don't want to call everything exquisite. (laughs) But some things truly are exquisite, so you don't want to waste your exquisite word. If you're going to describe something as exquisite, what would that be in your mind? A piece of art, you mean? Yeah. Um, Let's say it's the myth of Cupid and Psyche, and it's this statue by Canova, where their limbs are intertwined, they're the two lovers, and then at the very center of the composition is that tiny little space, about two inches, that's the space between their lips as they're just about to go in for a kiss. Gee. That sounds exquisite to me. <laughs> that is exquisite. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny that that I didn't know that was a special piece of art for you because when I go to the Louvre, and because of the work I do, I have to go to the Louvre, I get to go to the Louvre a lot, for some reason, the last piece of art I see is Canova's Psyche and what's it called? Uh, Cupid and Psyche. Cupid and Psyche, yeah. right after Michelangelo's Slaves. Yeah. And it is that, it's that electric zone, the air between the marble that is like the center of the statue. You're right, and it is. It's like electric, oh. just like uh, Michelangelo's touching fingers on the creation yeah. of man. The fun thing about this is you don't need to be have this dictated to you in a classroom. You can immerse yourself in the art thoughtfully and you can... You can come up with these ideas that just, I always use the word carbonate, that carbonates the experience. Okay, here's another word, Gene. Symbolic. Symbolism. Symbolism. Um, how about, uh, instead of medieval symbolism, how about surrealism, like Dali or Magritte, where you're seeing these 
odd images, like Magritte is always painting bowler hats and clouds, and and Dali is putting in these weird images in there. And you, because it's surreal, you have to make the connections and find your your own meaning between these these randomly placed symbols. Huh. Maybe they're on a crusade. Another word might be juxtaposition. There you go. They're on a crusade to just mess up your juxtaposition. Rewire your brain. And if you try to figure it out too logically, you can explode. But if you can just go with it, it's a sort of, it's kind of a freedom. What about bombastic? Bombastic. Oh, let's say Versailles, yeah. the Palace of Versailles. It's yeah. 3,000 3, acres. For over, the out loud. <laughs> a, over the top. Over the top. They had a gondola in their, in their <laughs> pond out back. <laughs> let's go for a gondola ride. Um, bewitching. Bewitching. I would say, you know Alphonse Mucha, who did those Art Nouveau maidens? Oh, yeah. Those beautiful willowy maidens with the flowing hair. Willowy, nubile. Nubile, and the hair intertwines with the flowery background. I would call them bewitching. How about slice of life? We like to use that word, slice of life. Slice of life. How about... uh, you know, how about Jan Steen, who does those scenes of Dutch families, you know, those? And, yeah. And you see them just gathered around the, the kitchen table, and they're eating and drinking and talking to each other. He's kind of, to me, an example of that new kind of market where you don't have big, rich nobles and aristocrats and popes and kings and emperors paying for the art, but it's kind of merchant art. And I, I think by definition, it's affordable and small and not famous, but he's kind of the one famous guy in that genre. Here's another word, colossal. Colossal. Oh, how about uh, a tomb, a prehistoric tomb outside of Dublin at Newgrange. Oh, yeah. 5,000 years old, made of massive stones, 20-foot dome. All of this stone just to support one little tunnel inside where every day on the, on the winter solstice. So once a year on the solstice. Once a year. A beam of light comes shining through that little tunnel and lights up the sacred chamber inside. And they figured this out four, five thousand years ago, and it works to this day. It's wonderful. It's amazing. And we don't know what power it was, but everybody who did it is gone. So maybe when that sun ray came in, it just zipped them away and, <laughs> and they lived happily ever after. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Gene Openshaw. Gene essentially wrote the six-hour series that's airing across the United States right now, Rick Steves' Art of Europe. Boy, it's interesting to me, Gene, when we look at the art of Europe, that the places with the most art are the places that had the biggest kings in so many ways. And, and, you know, those empires are gone now. Madrid's not that important today in political, you know, economic world. But there was a time when the most powerful and richest man in Europe ruled Spain from Madrid. And there's a beautiful palace in there. And what he collected was some of the greatest art from all around Europe. So when you are going to sightsee in Europe and look for art, and you wonder where's the art, you kind of think, well, who were the big emperors? You have one in Madrid, you had one in Paris, and you had one in Vienna. Today, great museums in each of those cities. Great museums. What are a couple of sites in Europe that you thought, ah, that's a dimension of Europe's art I hadn't fully appreciated before? and I would recommend it more highly now after the work we did on this series. Um, What really strikes me is going to Europe is you can go and see the the big icons, and they're important to see, but you can also see the more intimate side, the lesser-known works. So, for example, if you go, you know, you're going to go, if you want to see something medieval, you know, see Notre Dame, and that's beautiful. 
But also remember that in the medieval period, you've got something like you've got the Muslim world that oh, was yeah. on the fringes in Spain. Go to the Alhambra. Look at the Rutlush, the gardens and the, and the fountains bubbling. And if I, if I could be a, a little bit um, candid with people, the medieval show was the one hour that we needed a little more razzle-dazzle visually because it's more than just cathedrals. And thank goodness Europe had these fringes during what used to be called the Dark Ages that were just pizzazz. I mean, you got Byzantium coming into Venice and Ravenna with incredible mosaics. You got the Muslims, the Moors in Spain. I mean, got the Vikings up in the north. And the Vikings in the north. So that's a lot of Europe that was during a time that we kind of write off. Kind of, uh, they're sort of the back door. They're kind of forgotten. But that was part of what helped to keep that flickering flame of civilization alive during those thousand years of dark, oh, can't say dark, dark ages. The, they just, the formerly, <laughs> yeah. the artist known as, yeah, formerly, formerly known, known as, as dark, as dark. period. We're summarizing what we've learned about the greatest art in Europe, which I feature in the Rick Steves Art of Europe TV series. My longtime collaborator, Gene Openshaw, is our guest. The six-hour series has been airing on public TV, and you can stream episodes whenever you like from our website at ricksteves.com. Gene, when we think of our work as tour guides and so on and how that relates to the TV series we just produced... Think of some magic moments that might help our listeners right now who are planning a trip. Of all the places we went, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, for example, in Orkney, the isle north of Scotland. That was the center of megalithic culture in its day. I didn't realize that until we went up there. And I walked into this tomb. It's a mound, a grassy mound with a, with a stone tunnel that takes you into this chamber. And I bent down, and I'm not that limber, and I bent down to walk through this 20 yards long tunnel to get to this chamber. And as I bent down, I thought for 5,000 years, people have been bending down just like me and probably not as stiff as me and climbing into the middle of this tomb for 5,000 years. And we can do that today. And you're experiencing the exact same experience that they went through back then. So what's an experience that that you'd like to people to pay attention to? Uh, For me, it's, it's often the little tiny details of beauty that somebody might have caught even, you know, back then and that you can see now. Like a statue by Bernini where you see a a man's hand grabbing a woman's thigh and you can actually see the indentation that his fingers make in this woman's thigh and it's made out of marble. He makes this hard marble look like just small, just like uh, supple flesh. That's one of those moments when you see it. And you just go, wow. And you go, wow. And it takes a moment to get there. You don't just walk by it. You've got to ponder a piece of art. You've got to lavish your attention on it. And we can trace the evolution of our culture. One way to do that, I find, and it comes with magic moments, is domes. I talked about that first tomb from 5,000 years ago. Uh, We go to Mycenae. We see the Tholos tomb. And then I always love the thought of, What was the next biggest dome? Because the mark of a civilization's architectural sophistication is how much of a a span can they do without any interior support. Can you think of domes? We know the the Mycenaean tomb in in Greece when we tour the Peloponnesian Peninsula for what a long, for centuries, that was the biggest dome. And I would take you to Istanbul for what is, what in its day was probably the most impressive dome ever made in the church of Hagia Sophia, right. which is now a 
which is then a mosque and now a cultural center. And that would go back to around the year 600 and huge dome. Huge dome in a way that would have wowed the people at the time. It would have dwarfed the Pantheon, which was the biggest dome for 400 years before that. And then after Hagia Sophia, or Hagia Sophia, we got Brunelleschi's dome in Florence. And then, of course... Which inspired Michelangelo, who was from Florence, who then went to Rome and built the grandest dome in Italy, St. Peter's. Now, for somebody to go to any one of those domes and to understand just the grandeur and the wonder of domes through the story of art history, that's one little thread. And together, I think we've been able to tie a bunch of threads together into what is a pretty cool tapestry. The more you dig into this, you realize this whole complex web of art and culture and progress. One of the great things I think about this show that I enjoy the most is that we do step out from the chronological story long enough to follow the thread of one idea, whether it be domes or, for example, the evolution of statues in in Greece, mm-hmm. you know, from very stiff statues in the early t- days to the balance of the Golden Age, like the Venus de Milo, to the Hellenistic emotion like the winged victory and how that evolution of art styles mirrored the very evolution of Greek society. You know, you and I both had, I think, uh, similar professors. We nicknamed them Professor Stuffy Balding. <laughs> in our very first writing, we, were in, we, we got our, our introduction to art history from Professor Stuffy Balding. You and I have been for 50 years now trying to get that same joy across without the stuffy. And it's been a delicate balance because you want it to be historically accurate, you know? I'm thankful for stuffy. I I am too. But if something happened in 1496 and something happened in 1504, we might just simplify and say, around 1500 this happened. And I'm hoping that that will resonate with the viewers. And if we do it well, like wine, it'll be a very good friend. And it's intoxicating. <laughs> Thank you, Gene. Great writing. I'm so thankful that, that we have public television to share our love of European art, that we have public radio to talk about it right now. And I just would like to remind anyone who would like to better appreciate and enjoy the story of European art that our series, Rick Steves' Art of Europe, is airing now across the United States on public television. Thanks a lot, Gene. Great to be here, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Kazmura Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Thanks to the BBC in London for their help this week. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You can find links to our guests and search the show archives at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. <laughs>